done my filming bit for Ken's latest feature. All right, so how did that go? Which was done on Saturday with a, a shed load of green screen. Um, and it's it's about an international air race in the early 50s. Mm. And it's about how it was looked at. Apparently it's partly based on a little bit of truth. Based on real Unifying, events. Yeah, unifying nations um, against the red men by, by sharing a little bit of technology and having various countries do these these races so it's a bit like those magnificent men in their flying machines or the great race type setup all right um i am an aviation journalist <laughs> who is covering the story we texted about raymond baxter did you go with the full raymond baxter i did have a pipe i did have to to make me appropriately 50s and my my mac and my fedora so uh yes kind of blended right in i won't tempt any spoilers by asking you who won the international air race i don't know i haven't seen the full script yet but we only had the trailer script we only had the teaser and who wrote the script um ken oh great um there's some very progressive elements in it because um i work for a female newspaper editor get that does she say may i remind you as in birth? <laughs> may i remind you that um i think they're going possibly for that um his girl friday type Right. Um, Fast-talking element. For anyone who didn't know what that meant, the May I Remind You was the woman who runs the magazine in Berlin Desk. One of our favourite TV shows. <laughs> our favourite TV shows. So many episodes lost. Yes, if only somebody could rediscover them. Perhaps just mm -hmm. the audio soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, just an audio one, like some of those Doctor Who ones, yeah. We were down in London last week. That was quite fun. So we went to see the science fiction exhibition at the Science Museum. Oh, um, thanks, OK. Um, which Seems had... a bit of a contradiction in terms, that really, science fiction at a, a proper science museum. Well, they have to pull in the punters. It was about how imagination inspired people. Now, I tried to send you a picture. I don't know whether you got it. Oh, no, no. Oh, right. It was of a model of the Enterprise signed by Nicole Nichols and George Takai. <gasps> and it was quite sizable. And you know, through the case in the background, you can see the spacesuit from Sunshine. Okay, yeah, yeah. And one from Alien with the cricket pads. Oh, right, yes, yeah. John Mollo, I think, if I remember correctly. And also what purported to be a suspended animation table which I think they might have nicked from Tales from the Legion. <laughs> Probably. That was quite fun. I mean, they kind of pretend that you've been teleported up to a spaceship and you just wander through talking to an artificial intelligence on a screen. Voiced by a famous actor. Um, I didn't recognise her. And she's probably in spotlight, but then she could have been computer generated for real. Well, yeah, it could have been real AI, not fake AI. And they had a genuine animatronic cat. Okay. Uh, which, when you poked it, might have purred. Do you find it... I mean, I know that people have to enter into the part, but have you ever been involved in one of those situations when you're actually role-playing with the general public and the general public can't actually ask you proper questions because you have to stay in character all the time i thankfully have avoided that kind of thing but when we were at dramatic school in london 
Richard Kay, who was probably the shortest person on our year. Um, he got the part of the Incredible Hulk at a comic signing event because he was able to fit into the costume. Um, and I've still got me signed postcard. Hulk smash. Uh, but he, he was just given like a couple of lines of dialogue to say, you know, such as Hulk smash. Um, Richard was from Barnsley, I should point out. So he, he did have to do some accent work um, on that. But yes, he, he wasn't really allowed much, much interaction. Uh, and then other times it was of a more commercial aspect. So when they launched the first Taco Bell in Leicester Square in London, um, our on the button lecturer at uh, college, David Owen Bell, um, managed to secure us for those who wanted it promotional work to dress up as a Mexican and, uh, you know, with guitars, sombrero, droopy mustache, ay, 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 and hand out leaflets encouraging people to come along and, and try their tacos. Um, I didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, my friend Rosie did and still regrets it. <laughs> yes, but hey, you're young. You need the money. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a, a, um, a good good gig. You know that. So, no, I've, I've thankfully avoided those types of things where you are kind of like playing a role. Yes. As a member of the public, I'm never quite sure what my role is. I have to improvise. Yes. I remember going to the old Odeon cinema in Leeds, which used to be on the head row. And it wasn't the film we were going to see, but there was a big promotional launch for the big screen version of Lost in Space, the 60s TV show. And they had given the staff guiding people their seats and selling popcorn and what have you, representations of the spacesuits that they wore in Lost in Space. Now, the ones in Lost in Space in the film, because it had a bit of a big budget, um, looked very spectacular. The ones that the staff were given to wear looked less practical and useful. And, and I did ask them about how comfortable they felt wearing them, and it wasn't good. They were just like one-piece unitards. Were they hot? Yes, because there was kind of all these like foam rubber kind of pieces on them to, to look like pieces of additional technology. Oh, uh, yeah. And how they went to the toilet, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's always the problem with spacesuits, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, I suppose, what was it? Lost in Space was about 90, 90, 96, 97 or so, something like that. So, so maybe people were less concerned about where they would keep their mobile phones in, in such a close-fitting garment. But nowadays, yeah, oh, you wouldn't get away with it. You wouldn't be able to do it. Yes, I can imagine it would um, cause some unsightly bulges. They did the same thing when they did when they launched Avatar. Some of the staff had to be painted blue. Again, sorry, I'm not selling popcorn looking like a smurf. Thanks very much. No way. Well, the watchword is dignity, always dignity. Yes, dignity, always, always dignity. But yeah, those, you know, those promotional gigs for a lot of actors you know, can be like bread and butter. But yeah, thankfully, I dodged the bullet on, on that. Right, shall we start the show? Okay, yes. Let's, let's do that right now. <coughs> Hello and welcome to Rose Tinted Black and White Television's review show. 
I'm Guy Morgan, my co-host is David Newell, and this is the show where we discuss various series that flickered across Britain's black and white TV screens from 1956, which was the Suez Crisis, to 1974, which was the three-day week. And we are still working our way through Roger Moore's The Saint, except no substitutes. We are now on series three, and we have three episodes to talk about. The Contract, The Setup, and The Rhine Maiden. I think it's fair to point out, Dave, that uh, The Contract was quite an effort on Roger Moore's part. Yes, one of those groundbreaking efforts, because um, he's directing it. Now, we sort of mentioned this aspect before, where you would have the star of you know, a really successful TV series and they would hold a considerable amount of influence and, you know, being given the opportunity to direct, you know, he did go on to direct more episodes. He also directed episodes of the Persuaders as well, but he was one of the first to, to go down that route. And I suppose only a few years later, you know, you had, again, a big star kind of legend with, with The Prisoner for example, which Patrick McGowan had a had a huge creative influence over. And it's it really makes it for fascinating viewing, kinds of adds um, a dimension to it. You know, you have some actors who will will have careers uh, and then they will, will switch over to directing. You know, Ida Lupino, I suppose, would be a good choice. Um, very good star of the 40s and, and 50s and then moving over um, to directing May Zetterling, again, one of those female groundbreaking directors, um, again, start and then moving on to directing. Um, I suppose it's more common in America, where you, know, you may have people who may have had um, you know, a peaked early career, and then they've found a new lease of life with directing. Um, and it's sort of a shame that Roger didn't do any more, really, because I think he does a, a, some nice little lovely touches in this. Yeah, I mean... Crossfading flames with um, a remembered flashback, uh, and then he then crossfaded again to a domestic fire. He's also not afraid to muss his hair up and dirty his jacket, leaping out of the way of that attempted hit and run. So, yeah, part of the business when he was talking to John Bennett's character was you know, was him brushing his jacket off. Yeah, it's not a selfish you know, directing an episode where he's, you know, in shot. Um, but it is neither one of those episodes which you sometimes get where a star has directed it, um, but they only appear in like the first couple of scenes and the last couple of scenes. And then, you know, someone else or an assistant has to do all the running around and problem solving. Or, and, and I guess one of the things with, with The Saint is because there's no supporting cast to shore that up, it does still become then, you know, Rog pulling double duty, where if you look at episodes of Frasier, for example, where um, Kelsey Grammer's directed them, there are some where he does kind of like take a little bit of a backseat, but he's got such a stellar supporting cast. No, I thought it was pretty good. Um, I don't know whether you caught the repeat of Michael Caine's masterclass on screen acting. This um, this isn't the one done by Peter Serafinowicz, is it, where he shows us about how if... You're smoking a cigar in real life. Actually, on camera, it shows up as a sausage. And you know what? I don't know why that happened. No, this was the genuine one. 
went out back in the 1980s and they did ask him whether he had thought about directing. Mm. And he said, well, maybe. He was in his 50s then. Mm. But he said it can take two years of involvement to direct a movie and finish it. And he can make four films in one year. So mm. not really worth his while, I think. Yeah. Why would you do that? We've talked about the directorial flair. Um, I think we need to talk about the plot. Right, okay. Well, the plot is um, provided to us by screenwriter Terry Nation, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, you know kind of a, a familiar name to viewers of the 60s, 70s, um, and indeed a little bit in the 80s as well. Um, so the contract, it, it starts off with one of those good timing, bad timing things. One of the delights of not being gainfully employed is that my life is uh, uh, sort of reversed. At night, when most men are sleeping, I'm usually gambling or dancing with beautiful women and drinking champagne. Then in the morning, when most men are going to work, I'm going to bed. It's a topsy-turvy kind of life, but I enjoy it. It gives me a feeling of serenity and security. And a car attempts to run him down, kind of very, very reckless. You all right? I'm not exactly bubbling with good humour. What are you doing here, Odossi? I'm coming to warn you. They're out to kill you. That's nice. I thought it was my doctor trying to drum up trade. And John Bennett appears and gives um, a, a warning. He comes into Roger's house and warns him that there's a contract out on him. Now, what kind of fool would put out a contract on the Simon Templar? Um, you know, because you, you, you've got to have your work cut out for it. And they're only looking for five grand to complete the work. No money at all. Um, so Rog does a little bit of detecting work, which is what he does best. And this takes him to that den of iniquity, cesspit of humanity, Rotherhive. And it takes him there um, to Mannion's Wharf, drives there in his own car because he's going to investigate. And what's lovely, because... You know, Rog has many strings to his bow. We know he directs, we know he acts. And we know from the persuaders that he also designs some of his clothes. And you notice Rog has a very casual look for breaking in gear. It was almost the man from Milk Tray. Yes, he's gone for very dark outfit, a little bit of a polo neck going on. It's his breaking and entering clothing. And then it turns out that... There is indeed a contract out on Roger's life, and the guy who runs um, the warehouse company at Mannion's Wharf is kind of like the broker, I would imagine, the best way to do, um, to describe it. Um, and it appears that a former Air Force officer has taken out the contract. She points out it's a, an American Air Force officer. Yes, an American um, Air Force officer. And um, Bodge gets into a little bit of bother in the warehouse, and um, he does... Uh, kind of uh, enter an ingenious way. Do you go in in a crate? That's um, right. It won't be the last time that he smuggles himself <laughs> somewhere, either in a packing case or in a trunk. So he has himself delivered. Um, he manages to escape. And then uh, uh, in a moment, you, you just think, well, what's going on here? Because his white Volvo appears to drive up to rescue him. You just think, well, what's going on here? Is is it like Kit from Knight Rider? Has he like spoken into his watch? I need you, buddy. And no, it turns out it's an old chum of Simon who is familiar with his car, familiar with Simon's ways, 
and manages to rescue him and get him out of that. And already we can be playing Saint Bingo and old chum of Simon's, it seems very pally. Is it an old chum who will eventually die? Is it um, an old chum who sees him through thick and thin all the way through to the end? Or is it an old chum who is only there to exploit Simon and turn the tables on him towards the end? We won't give too much away. Anyway, um, you know, uh, we mentioned that uh, Roger Moore's directing this episode, so he is quite front and centre in this. He doesn't shirk responsibilities. But what's quite interesting in this is, what's the best way to put this? It's an episode that's Dane Light. I think is the best way to to describe it. There's not necessarily a very strong female role to bounce off. It's more sort of like the villains of the piece. Um, Also, um, Ivor Dean is Inspector uh, Claude Eustace Teal. And then we sort of get down to this stolen money, which was taken by these nasty flyer types, and it's missing. It needs to be recovered. So... Rog goes on a little bit of an investigation. He comes across some interesting characters, comes across a police constable played by Nicholas Courtney, the brigadier from Doctor Who. Also comes across um, a housekeeper played by Mary Jones. Now, Mary Jones um, alleges to have been born in Wales, but from her accent that she employs in this episode, you would never have guessed that. And maybe because Rogers is, is busy starring in it and he's busy directing in it, there's there's some things which have just passed him by, um, and I think maybe one of them may have been Mary Jones's accent. And it rattles along, and sure enough, um, Robert Hutton is is the villain of the piece. John Bennett, who we saw at the beginning, also turns out to be a villain. And then, surprise, surprise, his best buddy also turns out to be one of the villains. And then there's loads of gunplay. The money is eventually tracked down and recovered. A nasty old Robert Hutton, who uh, also does a terrible job of ransacking an office when he's looking for something. He does a terrible job at it. He, unfortunately, meets a grisly end in a railway accident. And I would imagine the train that does run him down is delayed because it's the wrong kind of body on the line. Um, But it's... It's, yes, he, he gets his foot caught in points, uh, and yet he gets squished um, by, by trains. Quite violent um, towards the end. There's a lot of, like I said, a lot of gunplay. There's a lot of horrible accidents. Um, but yes, it's, it's all about this money that needs to be recovered that was stolen in a very elaborate scheme, which involved a plane taking off plane landing i think it goes to amsterdam and this idea of that maybe it's been converted um whilst they're in amsterdam converted into something else and as we all know easiest thing if you are going to amsterdam it's a world center for it and if you need money to exchange into something which is smaller more manageable best two things clogs and hatch just to just to change them into that. Yes, but they choose a, a third alternative. Oh, they go for diamonds, don't they? Ah, oh, what playing yeah. at? Which is another theme that reoccurs in future saints, where diamonds and Amsterdam, or occasionally Antwerp, and the diamonds are hid in plain view. Um, it's one of those things where you're like, where on earth am I going to hide these diamonds? Where am I, am I going to hide 
And I think, is it a fish tank that they're in? Um, yes, because they did look at the fish tank. Now, Dave, have you ever had goldfish? Um, yes, I had them. And please don't read anything sinister into this, listeners. I did have some goldfish for a short period of time. <laughs> a charm, yeah. How often did you clean the tank? Oh, God, yeah. Well, I was nagged at by mum and dad uh, about my responsibilities as, as looking after a pet. So, yeah, to kind of like wash and uh, clean and clean the inside of the tank. So, yeah, I was doing it kind of like once a week. I That was that was the way I was brought up anyway. The implication is that if the diamonds are in the fish tank, they've been there for eight years. All right, yeah, see your point now. Um, and surprisingly, the fish look rather chipper. Mm. Well, <laughs> they're swimming around a fortune. But it did make me wonder. I thought, you know, you need to clean out fish tanks more mm. than every eight years. And when Simon makes a valiant attempt at starting to do that in order to discover the diamonds, mm -hmm. his supposed friend then suddenly pulls a gun. Okay, buddy boy. I'll take those now. I wondered when you'd come into the open, Dunn. Just give me the stones. You didn't have to shoot first. Yes, I did. I met him in the States and he knew I wasn't with Air Force Security anymore. And then you gunned down our dossier when there was no need? Just cutting down the opposition. Give me the stones. What's the matter? Civilian life too tough for you? Something like that. I spent my whole life in the service. I didn't think the pension was big enough. Of course, Simon's not surprised because he suspected something was fishy all along. And, and what I was puzzled about was why didn't he just let Simon hand over the diamonds still under the pretense that he's working for the US authorities and then go away? Yeah, just go. Thanks, Simon, for wrapping this case up. I'm going to hand this back to the proper authorities um, and I'll give you a receipt. It doesn't work out like that. And Simon has to get clubbed on the back of the neck again, only for the villain to open the door and discover Claude Eustace Teal and the Brigadier. And he's going nowhere. That. He's going nowhere. So despite Elizabeth Weaver's character, who is actually quite a successful crime author, mm. who could possibly, on that basis, get her own series. I, I don't know whether yeah, it would because fly. she... she is convinced that in one of her murder mysteries, an unpublished one as well, as it turns out, uh, which is in like the bottom drawer somewhere, she kind of creates the backstory for the crime. They realise that, oh, wait a minute, her story is a really good way of stealing money, converting it into diamonds and then hiding it out. Well, here's one ending I tried. They substituted the gold bars for the weights in a lift shaft. I'll remember that the next time I have some hot gold. Well, here's something. It's pretty wild, though. They took the gold of the zoo, dropped it in the tanks at the aquarium. Did I like that? Anyway, it's diamonds we're looking for, not... Right. So... Presumably, she might get some kind of reward. Um, or at least a story credit. <laughs> yeah. She had quite a or tough life having discovered that her uh, adored husband, 
who had uh, died shortly after the heist, turns out to be a crook. And she gets threatened quite a lot, menaced at least twice by Robert Hutton's character. Uh, so she has quite a hard time of it, really. Yeah, she does. Um, there's also the very poignant bit where they go and speak to one of the other people that was involved in the crash, which killed her husband as well. Uh, someone who painfully got PTSD, um, mm. but adds a, a nice little darker element to the series, or, or certainly to that episode. Yeah, and all the crossfades are quite useful. With Rog at the helm, it rattles along. There are several things that puzzled me. If you're going to kill the saint to take a contract out on him, now whether there was a genuine contract, I'm not entirely sure. Why not run the saint over properly rather than tempting him to get involved in your business? Who put Simon in the crate? Um, yes, crates are notoriously difficult to seal from the inside. So did he just leap in the crate and the guy came and collected him and put the crate? Yep. I would have thought he probably would, might need a crane or at least some sort of a, assistance but to get it yeah, on. Because he, he, does, he does have a friend of his, doesn't he? There is a, there is a haulier, that, a friendly haulier she does contact. But... I presume that it was just the delivery note that said, please take this crate to Rotherhive. And if you're doing that, who paid the driver? Because are you going to leave the cash, the 40 quid or whatever it is, on top of the crate? Yeah, crate on the top. Yeah, how's that going to work? And also, if you're a villain and making your escape, now, Robert Hutton's character keeps breaking into... Elizabeth Weaver's character's flat. And when he escapes from the saint and his supposed buddy, he runs out and basically hails the getaway car as if he's hailing a cab. He stands there and waits for the getaway car to arrive, which gives people ample time to chase him. And so why didn't he run towards the getaway car? Um, I don't know. I'm not a master criminal, so I, what do I know? Um... Let's talk about who's in it. Dick Hames, who turns out to be the bad friend. Hmm. When IMDb lists his Hollywood nickname as Mr. Evil, <laughs> you've got to wonder what's going on. Um, he was a crooner, much married, much divorced. This saint and an appearance with Tony Hancock a couple of years later are apparently an attempt to rekindle his career in Europe though he did go back to the States and do some work there. Robert Hutton, also American, Three Saints and Man in a Suitcase, The Persuaders, probably best known for his big screen adventures, The Slime People, and they came from beyond space. Isn't that the one where he's got a metal plate in his head so the aliens can't brainwash him? It could be. I'm trying to remember whether the aliens turn out to be Michael Goff. Yes, they do. It's not the only film, I think, in which Michael Goff played an alien in that year. Hey, if you're good at something, stick with it. I think he was free for a day and just turned up to wear a frock. Elizabeth Weaver, the tragic widowed crime novelist, notably 10 episodes of Doomwatch. Nine episodes of Fraud Squad, six of Crown Court, single plays and guest appearances. But her biggest earner was 
22 appearances in the football soap United in 1966 because not much was happening in the world of football that year. No, people barely get a chance to connect with it. John Bennett, a pillar of TV with 176 credits, two points, four Saints, 21 episodes of Front Page Story. I wonder what that was about. He was Philip Bassini in the Foresight Saga in a wig, if I remember rightly. Uh, he played... <laughs> Li Chang in Doctor Who's Talons of Weng yeah. Chang. Yeah. Elsewhere, Strange Report, The Baron, Danger Man, many others. Michael Peake, last seen in The Fellow Traveller, has one Avengers point in the Mrs. Peel episode Quick, Quick, Slow Death. Uh, elsewhere, Vendetta, Doctor Who, eight episodes of Richard the Lionheart, uh, Robin Hood and William Tell. And as we usually say when this happens, probably had his own tights. He was another actor who died far too young at the age of 48, but he packed in 80 credits. So that was Well done. Yeah. Uh, Richard Easton, his only saint, but a career both sides of the pond. Over here, guested in many shows, he's probably best known for his 85 appearances in The Brothers. Douglas Muir, who played the Doctor, has 11 Avengers points from the studio days. Yeah. Is what is that a record for um, a actor who didn't play either one of the leads or mother? Is is that a record? Possibly, unless you're looking at maybe some of the uncredited credits. But um, Douglas Muir played one ten, who was in fact Steed's boss, sort of like a mother figure, but without the wheelchair and the silent blonde assistant. Mary Jones, we've talked about her accent, sounds Welsh. It's the first of three saints. I don't know whether she'll be being Welsh in that. Hope not. And as we've said, the eagle-eyed viewers will have noticed that Claude Eustace Teal's uncredited uniformed sidekick is none other than Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, a.k.a. Nicholas Courtney. He's a star, two Avengers points, appearances in Jason King, the champions, Randall and Hopkirk, Sergeant Cork, altogether gracing 78 TV shows. George Helsden, the uncredited waiter, two and a half points, and he was a prolific background actor with 193 screen credits. And uh, Pat Ryan, the forensic chap who was dusting for fingerprints in the warehouse, um, four uncredited Avengers points, nine sates, 146 credits in all. So... That was the contract. They attempted to kill the saint that time. As if they'd succeed. Yeah, and blow me, somebody has another go in the next one. Yes, yeah, this one's called um, The Setup. Um, in, in this one, Roy Ward Baker um, is the Royal Reigns um, on, on this. And we are in we are in London. We're in the Baytree Club um, in, in London. And we're in a casino. Um, we're not in a very realistic casino because there's windows. Um, and casinos nowadays don't encourage windows. So you have no idea how much time has passed. That's why you don't get clocks in, in casinos either. Um, and uh, Rog is having a little bit of fun, gambling, a little bit of flutter. Um, and one of the other players seems to drop lucky and wins, wins a couple of grand. Um, and this means that in order for other players to be paid out of the safe. And at this point is where a gang of robbers who we've kind of earmarked earlier 
come into their own and they put on their sinister masks and grab their even more sinister guns and race in. Um, it is a bit odd that their masks kind of muffle what they want. They say, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and it makes it a little bit hard to hear. But anyway, they, they do rob the place to get away with £23,000, but they do leave some bodies in their wake. And uh, the saint doesn't like this, his place being robbed. And worse still, the concierge being killed as well, Dorman being killed. So he sets out to investigate. He tails one of the guys who gets left behind, who hails a cab, yeah. and then tails him unobtrusively in the white Volvo. Yes, he does. He, he tails him, you know, smoothly enters the guy's flat, claims, oh, wait, no, no, you don't understand. And then, just when he's about to spill the beans, he gets shot by one of the other villains within the gang. So he is truly silenced. And now is infuriated. He hates this more than blackmail uh, and determines to find out who the real villains are. Um, also um, messed up in this is, because they were at the casino to, to begin with, is Una O'Grady, um, played by Penelope Warner. But once we meet Penelope's kind of agent, we realise that, wait a minute, I don't think that person should be trusted. And sure enough, he's not to be trusted because he heads up the gang. It's not much of a gang. They don't have kind of like a gang name, you know, like the where we've made kind of like the Scorpion or uh, the Latini. Um, they don't even have a name. They just have a hideout. There's two other guys, plus a bloke in a, um, in a dressing gown. Don't know what quite's going on with that. He, he looks a bit lazy. Um, but they attempt to throw the saint off their trail um, by having him assassinated. One of them says that I'll kill the saint and does so by leasing the flat opposite Simon Templar's muse um, in attempt to kill him. Um, but thankfully, Roger twigs onto this and with Una's help is able to foil the villains into thinking that he's been murdered. Um, again, villains are a bit clueless because as they're driving away from what they think is their successful assassination, they don't realise that they've been followed by a dead man's car. Um, and at this point, Saint uses a little bit of psychology in terms of um, turning the screws on the entire gang one by one. Although we are reminded a little bit later on when the police are lined in wait to round up the gang, just what a tough job being a security guard van driver yeah, is it, like. Because there's a lot of bodies in this episode, and if you're yeah. in The Saint, you don't want to be one of the two guys driving the security van. They're not even real security, man. They're actually police. That's right. And I went back and had a look at previous episodes where people have driven security vans and met a sticky end, including Jeffrey Palmer as one of them yes. in The Rough Diamonds. And in The Romantic Matron, there were two South American security guards who got gassed to yeah. death. Gassed that tunnel, didn't they? Yeah. So it's not a job that you want to be involved in if you're in an episode of the saint there's a lot of bodies and not only the security men there's the doorman there's the minor henchman the murderous mm -hmm. henchman yes um, it's good to know that the saint has also read his sherlock holmes yes because setting up the bust of caesar to fool the sniper is not necessarily an original idea and i was pleased to notice that i wasn't the only one 
who spotted this, but the IMDb critics comment on it, that when Rog is setting it up from the front, mm. Caesar has his usual thinness on top. But from mm. the sniper's point of view, there's a proper syrup on the back. Uh, yeah, so it has, it has got a high body count. You know what I was kind of hoping for? Because the villain's hideout is in a flat and it's upstairs and it's got a balcony where Roger's earwigged what they're planning so he can feed back to the coppers. And you know that the villains have to make retribution because they're so horrible and heinous. I was kind of hoping for a balcony fall. Yes, there could have been one on the fire escape, I suppose, but he just had to fire a shot down the fire escape after the minor henchman had been bumped off. Yes, tropes, blonde, etc. Penelope Horner, mid-twenties, apparently five foot five and a half inches. Um, Which just about fits in, yeah. Um, there's a casino, a safe, and in fact, put two safes. <laughs> oh, there is, yes. Um, he does leave his calling card as well, which I think is, a, is always a lovely touch. Again, he follows people in his white sporty Volvo, and they don't notice. Well, the other thing is uh, he also waited outside the minor henchman's flat in a doorway, and he'd lit up a fag. <laughs> um, yes. You know, that, uh, that kind of tradecraft really hasn't sunk in on Simon. There's a movie studio, uh, which they don't make full use of, but allows them to do an establishing shot of Elstree. Balcony action and vicious but stupid criminals. I mean, last time, I, I, you know what? Because there's the actors involved are a little colourless in this, they kind of didn't really impress that much. Whilst, yeah, they are waving guns around, there's a guy in the dressing gown, and there's Tex Goldman. They didn't impress. And for a bunch of master criminals who Claude Eustace Teal suspected were going for one last big job, but if he doesn't know who they are, how does he know that? Um, yes. Unless it's just on the Bush Telegraph, but um, then it could be all sorts of speculation. Yes, I remember thinking, if you have got undercover police in the security van, you're not going to have it full of the real money. So that seemed to be quite a surprise yeah, that, for the that, psychotic henchmen. Yeah, they get not because it's just a load of cut-out paper. Um, question, Guy, do police forces and law enforcement agencies, do they have like a batch of pre-cut A4 paper or newspaper to resemble bundles of money? Or, or do they get like kind of like someone who's who's on like um like on a mentoring scheme or on work placement to do it given that it's the 60s and it's very probably the met that's involved they'd either give it to a police cadet or to somebody in the women's department oh what it'd take them ages i know but from what i gather of the metropolitan police's history it's not a real man's job Cutting up bits of paper. Oh, right. Um, Cutting up newspaper. That would have been the attitude, I fear. Yes. Uh, anyway, the criminals are wrapped up. They turn on each other. People get shot. And Claude Eustace Teal wraps them up in a bag. And Simon teams up with Una for as long as she's over here. Yeah, she, she's quite game, isn't she? Because she plays along with um, his supposed murder. 
She has to give a performance about how horrible it was to see him killed in front of her. And, of course, now she has to change her agent, but... <laughs> yeah. Who's in it? Penelope Horner. As we've said, she fits the whole trope of uh, the damsel, if not in distress, then someone who tags along. This is the first of three saints. Uh, she has one Avengers point, which is a Tara King. Elsewhere, she was in One Step Beyond, Gideon's Way, Moonstrike, uh, The Persuaders, Jason King, The Adventurer, Star Maidens. Uh, yes, I know. The Brothers and Single Plays, but probably best known for 52 episodes of Triangle. There you go, yeah. What about the ferry? John Stone, Welsh, but didn't do the accent this time. He has three mm. points. He was a submarine captain in You Only Live Twice and in an episode of The Champions. Oh, right, he got four. I mean, it's a regular role in The Champions, um, <laughs> submarines. He also did single plays. He was in Clough, Zedcar, Softly, Softly and Doomwatch. Henry Gilbert, in spite of playing a convincing American as Tex, he was born in Edmonton, London. He was in Compact, Danger Man, Adam Adamant, The Champions, Jason King and Doctor Who and 12 episodes of 199 Park Lane, which we've discussed previously. Edward Underdown, an old Etonian of aristocratic bearing, so he played a few, uh, plus a lot of top brass military. Uh, he has two points, three danger mans, and two man in a suitcases. Well, should that be men in a suitcase? Yes, yeah, do we pluralise it? Men in suitcases. Hmm. Redmond Phillips, uh, a New Zealander, a full range of 60s shows, one point in Return of the Cybernauts, Two Saints, Danger Man, May Go Twice, The Invisible Man, Sergeant Cork, and Compact before he returned to the Antipodes. Norman Florence, who was South African, one point in the studio days. Uh, later on, The Champions, Doomwatch, The Troubleshooters, Vendetta, 23 episodes of Compact, second of Three Saints. He was last seen in Series 1, uh, The Loaded Tourist. Tony Wager. Now that sounds like it should be a series in itself. <laughs> Professional gambler, Tony Wager, international man of mystery. <laughs> Two Saints, nine episodes of Dixon and Doc Green, and he was the young Pip in David Lean's Great Expectations. Oh, heavens, what a start in life. I know. Faith Kent, who played the luckless landlady, Mrs. Donaldson. I, I just wonder how the saint got to know her. Maybe she took in a parcel for him. Why? Yeah, was... took parcels in or, or stuff like that or um, just keep check on his milk. Faith Kent had 47 screen credits, which extended up to Little Britain and Tracy Beaker, guest appearances in many 60s shows. And her biggest payday was... 104 episodes of El Dorado. At least I hope she got paid for that. Now, she was married to Tremaine from the champions, Anthony Nichols. Um, and mother to actresses Kate and Phoebe Nichols and grandmother to Tom Sturridge. Oh, wow. Because Phoebe Nichols was um, in Brideshead Revisited. Mm. A marvellous role. Groundbreaking. And it's always good to see a dynasty, isn't it? Mm. But that's a very kept quiet dynasty, that is, yeah. Yeah, surprisingly, I didn't spot it when um, Tremaine was in that quiet seaside town of Bosom as the lawyer. Right, yes, yes, with those little old ladies. That's right. Um, so we didn't go into that, but yes, the Kent-Nichols dynasty 
gets its full due here. In the uncredited department, Lewis Alexander, three points, nine cents, lived to 100 and racked up 144 screen credits, including many ITC favourites. And according to IMDb, he also worked as an electrician. Roy Beck, uncredited, two points, 13 cents, and appearances elsewhere. Jim Brady, uh, one point, man-eater of Surrey Green, uh, six cents, 251 screen credits. John Cam, three Avengers, uh, three cents, Doctor Who, and Plague of the Zombies. Yay! And regulars, Victor Harrington, Michael Dempsey, Arthur Goodman, and your favourite, Austin Cooper. Yes, my favourite car of the 60s. So that was the setup. Now, I had to do some geography on this, whether it was strictly accurate, but the next episode is The Rhine Maiden, and it mm-hmm. starts off with Baden-Baden, which is um, yes. a kind of a comedy German name. Yeah, that, that repetition. Um, um, the Rhine Maiden, as it turns out, is is not the lovely lady who, who happens to be in this, um, Stephanie Randall. No, um, the Rhine Maiden isn't even a boat, which you might think would be your second choice. Um, it Way down your list would be a train. Oh, Probably right. about my second choice, yes. The Ryan Maiden is indeed a train, which features heavily in um, the plot towards the end. The saint is in um, Baden-Baden, and he starts off with one of those lovely little pieces of information where we have to think, is this factual? Are you telling us you know, a true story here, Simon? Or is it a bit of a fib? So he's talking about tips. T-I-P-S. To ensure prompt service. Given to waiters because he's, he's in a cafe in a hotel. And he says that Samuel Johnson, that wise old man of English letters, came up with the term tips. Because it stands for to ensure prompt service. I don't know whether that's true or not. But you know what? I'd like to believe it. It would be good. And I know that Dr. Johnson compiled the first dictionary. I'm not quite sure under what letter insure would be. Because if you're insuring service, I would spell that with an E. Yes, yeah. So that would be tips. Yes. (laughs) But if you're an upper class aristocrat, that's probably how you would pronounce it. Yes, because you live in a flat. Um, (laughs) F-L-E-T. Anyway, Simon is in Baden-Baden and he's, he's spoken to the German waiter and has given us this little marvellous little piece of history. And then he notices a very nervous, edgy Englishman played by Nigel Davenport, who seems to be clutching onto dear life to this briefcase. This kind of like piques um, Simon's interest. Um, and then the Englishman has to dash back to his room because he has a call from a local doctor. Just at the same time as Julie Harrison turns up uh, looking for, um, indeed, this Englishman. Simon has a brief word with her. Um, She is told where the Englishman was sitting because his drink's still there. But things take a sinister turn where the, the, the nervous Englishman tries to brain Julie Harrison by pushing kind of like a big plant pot off the balustrade of his, his hotel balcony. He's obviously um, seen the talented husband, the first episode yes. of The Saints. Um, yeah. And then the plot <laughs> begins to, to form. And we find out that there is a local medical clinic. Now, 
Guy, you know that I have a theory that most bars and pubs depicted in films and TV are horrible places and you would never go in there because something horrible usually happens. Um, but in all your days of watching film and TV, have you ever come across a private clinic that isn't sinister? No. And what makes it even more sinister is that it's in Germany and... Oh. The doctor is middle-aged and yes. <laughs> has a equally sinister blonde assistant. Hans, yes. <laughs> um, now, um, thankfully, even though it's quite a big-looking clinic from the outside, there only appears to be a, a handful of staff having to, to look after the place. Um, we have the, the, the clinic head, Dr. Um, Dr. Schreiber, and his sidekick, Hans, and they appear to be up to something with bodies that they shouldn't be up to. And it appears, as, as the plot unspools, that Nigel Davenport, playing Charles Voison, um, has a big briefcase of money because what he's looking to do is to have a body passed off as himself so he can successfully disappear. And all he has to do to accompany, uh, complete this is do two things, hand over a big wad of cash and take a deadly drug which will induce cardiac seizure in him. Um, surely, I'd have just done the first one, surely that would be enough. Um, but the saint twigs onto this, wait a minute, there's something going on, um, there's lots of interplay, Simon ends up in a drawer in a morgue, can't be good for you. There's also the worry that maybe they can't go to the police because uh, he says that his relationship with the, the Barden Barden police perhaps isn't too cordial. So they have to do some sleuthing um, on their own. Um, Nigel Davenport and Hans do a runner um, onto the Rhine Maiden train, which will see them cross the border um, and see them successfully disappear to in Europe um, with their money and a new identity. But the saint manages to catch up with them um, in a speeding bit of driving. Um, they get on the train and then there's the usual rough and tumble. And for the second episode in the three that we've been covering, the lead villain gets squished by a train. Once again, whatever German is for, it's the wrong kind of body on the line. <laughs> yeah. So then Stephanie Randall's character gets the money and can also pay the Saint's parking fine, which is yes. 20 marks. Uh, and then that's it. Bang, they're out. Yeah, they're out. And they do even use the Rhine Maiden as the last line. You'll notice that these three last episodes don't use the title as the, as the last line. Which is a great shame. I think they ought to concentrate on bringing that back. <laughs> Yeah. I did notice, now that this is an episode directed by James Hill. James Hill has helmed episodes before. James Hill went on to direct big budget things like Born Free, um, went on to direct things like The Bellston Fox, amongst others. And you know what? In this, there appears to be a little bit of a sense of humour. Because at one point, Simon is looking for the train compartment that contains... Um, Nigel Davenport, um, uh, where he's hiding out. And he goes along the succession of um, train compartments. Some he doesn't bother knocking on because, for one, for example, he hears a baby crying. And then another, a door is opened by a very Germanic-looking chap with um, black hair comb over 
and a small Charlie Chaplin moustache resembling someone that we all may recognise. And uh, Rog does one of his little double-take raised eyebrow things and, and goes off. Um, but yeah, as the episode rattles along, every once in a while there are these little bit of kind of injections of humour, which, which aren't out of place as such. Um, so come as a, ni- a nice little bonus. It is, and I think it's a nod to The Lady Vanishes, really, isn't there? Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, instead of two cricket-obsessed Englishmen, there's uh, an Englishman, an Englishwoman, and he... Uh, yes, who, who does say he must be foreign because he's not closed the window <laughs> when Simon clambers out of the compartment to edge along. Train enthusiasts may be a little bit disappointed that the end footage when uh, Nigel Davenport gets squished, rather than revealing the, the Rhine Maiden train that we've seen, just appears to be some stock footage of an English Deltic. Um <laughs> Other train fans may carp about the fact that the Rhine Maiden is clearly a diesel locomotive, but at certain times during the escapade on the train when the windows are open, um, steam seems to mysteriously come in through the window. And you just go, where's that coming from? I don't know. This is a couple of things that puzzled me. Victor Beaumont and Anthony Booth, Germans seem to lack the ruthless streak for ex-Nazis. Yes. Because Dr. Schreiber is definitely an ex-Nazi, if you can be such a thing, because Nigel Davenport presumably has some info on him and knows that uh, he's going to soon be on the run. Maybe they've mellowed, um, if that is possible. But they could quite easily have bumped off Mr voice and kept the money and no one would have been any the wiser absolutely yeah yeah it, i mean it's such a high risk thing of having to induce cardiac seizure um to begin with but yeah i would have just gone you know what top him keep the cash and particularly when hans accompanies him to the train and you think well why hand over the um money at the swiss border just hand it over at the train station and and be done with it because i think maybe it is so that um simon has a further obstacle to overcome and has to drive like a maniac the 80 miles or is it kilometers from baden-baden to offenburg which is halfway to switzerland I, I did look it up on the map because I'm glad you pointed out the Rhine Maiden was a train because I looked at it and I thought, Baden-Baden's not on the Rhine? What, what, what is all this? Um, and then I also looked at where Offenburg was and it does make sense. All right, so, okay, there you go. Geography doesn't lie. Not on this occasion in The Saint. Elsewhere, it's very, very suspect. Um, <laughs> now, tropes... Uh, the saint meets a blonde girl in her mid-twenties. Uh, no word on her height, though. Um, there's balcony business, but it's by Nigel Davenport uh, with that um, health and safety busting large urn full of flowers. Why yeah. Why would anyone put them up there? How would know. anyone put them up there? That would be the first, second question. Yes, he's careless with his personal security because when he breaks into the clinic, he takes care of one guard who creeps up behind him uh, and then he fails to notice that his reflection is going to be very obvious in the window while he's hiding in the office. Uh, So he's sneaking around and then he's in the morgue. He's being very cavalier about that. Um, They knock him out, stick him in a mortuary drawer and when Dr Schreiber 
attempts to inject him with something. I'm not quite sure how Simon does this. He obviously has superhuman strength in this episode because he manages to throw Dr. Schreiber across the room. For a guess. Then there's a quip, almost yes. Bond-like quip. <laughs> I'll uh, phone for the doctor. Maybe that's kind of Rog getting in some James Bond practice. It, it could well be. Uh, <laughs> there's quite a, a lot of fun. He is reasonably roughy-tufty in this one. Let's examine the players. Uh, Nigel Davenport, a star with 128 screen credits and two Avengers points. Uh, this is the last of his two Saints. He Elsewhere, he did single plays and instantly recognisable on the big and small screen. Stephanie Randall, South African, 25 episodes of The Newcomers and cameos in No Hiding Place, Moonstrike and The Prisoner. Did you notice her big screen outing? Oh, right, yes. Now, she's one of those people where you just think, oh, wait a minute, they were in what? She was in Slave Girls, which was obviously a, a hammer horror. Directed by Michael Carreras, I think, and written by Michael Carreras. And I read the plot synopsis, and it didn't make any sense at all. I think it's a, it's a little bit of a naughty film. Yes, there's a lot of girl-on-girl in One Million Years BC style for bikini action. Mm. And I think anyone now watching it would probably be utterly ashamed of themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think, yeah, that's safe to say. Um, But she's not blonde in that. They dyed her. Anthony Booth, obviously. The original Scouse Git. Yes, that's right. A titan of stage and screen in the 60s and beyond with one Avengers point from the studio days and two Saints. Personally, I don't think he had enough to do in his 52 episodes of Till Death Is Duke Park. <laughs> I have been watching some of that on, is it That's TV or whatever it is, one of the three <laughs> yeah. channels. And I realised that actually I have a problem with Johnny Spate's stuff. Warren Mitchell's having a whale of a time, but I think there's very little for Anthony Booth or Una Stubbs to do. But... Anthony Booth had a much better time and much more to do in 1968's La Ragazza con la Pistola. That sounds um, like someone with a gun. (laughs) The girl with the gun. We did have a conversation about this when they showed it on, I think it was Talking Pictures. Oh, you said, yeah, it's, it's really strangely dubbed. It's an Italian film, so obviously it's dubbed, but it's set in... Places like Edinburgh, Sheffield, I think Bath, oh, yes. and then London. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a feeling that you said, well, actually, it got Oscar nominated. Oh, right, yes. Yes, it's a very strange film. I just wanted to see what Sheffield looked like in the late 60s. Quite a strange film, but then a lot of Italian movies were fairly strange in the 60s and 70s. Now, I don't know what the language used on the set of the Rhine Maiden was. It could have been English, but I suspect it might as well have been German. A lot of Germans there, yeah. Or Austrians, or people who would now... Or Bohemians, I think they would be called. um, Yes. Because they would have been born before the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Victor Bowman, the 
evil Dr. Schreiber. He had a proper accent because he was from Berlin. At the price Mr. Voisin is paying us, he deserves our complete cooperation. Apart from other things, he was in The Baron, Interpol Calling and The Third Man and probably inevitably played his fair set of Nazis. George Pravda. To be quite blunt, I find your story very hard to believe. Why on earth should Simon Templer break into the Schreiber Clinic? Was born in Bohemia. He's got one point, one May Gray, loads of ITC and sundry BBC shows. Adina Mandlova. The Rhinemaiden Express departs Baden-Baden at 2310. Uh, like George Pravda, also born in what is now the Czech Republic, and it was her last screen credit. Frederick Schiller, born in Vienna, one Studio Avengers point, also one May Gray, a danger man. Guested in The Troubleshooters, Hancock's Half Hour, The Bedsit Girl, The Baron, The Champions, Colditz, uh, The Brothers and The Sweeney. Altogether, 105 screen credits. He lived to the age of 93, as did Ernst Walder, the train steward, who was born in Salzburg and inevitably played a lot of German military types. Appearances in The Four Just Men, Crossroads, the Baron, Two Champions, Two Saints, and Take Three Girls. All right, okay. Ernest Hare, the Englishman on the train, 64 credits and 12 episodes of ship-based anthology series Jezebel X UK, where he played the captain. Why don't they do anthology series on ships anymore? Perhaps where people, you know, meet up and fall in love. Shipboard romances, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know if there was any time for that kind of nonsense in Triangle. So uh, You'd have to really get off the blocks pretty fast if you wanted to start a shipboard romance. Shipboard romances for people in a hurry. <laughs> Michael Wolfe, born in Berlin. He was the barman and he'll be back again in a later scene as one of those helpful hotel receptionists. He also appeared in The Baron, Doctor Who, Sexton Blake, and uh, with Harry Worth. He's not the only person to have worked with Harry Worth in here. The other person to have worked with Harry Worth was Totty Truman Taylor, the English woman on the train. Now, because there is a film called Trotty True, isn't there? Yeah, so Trotty Truman Taylor. She has a Maygray under her belt, The Baron. Uh, she worked with the full panoply of... Uh, comedians from the 50s and 60s, not only Harry Worth, um, but Tony Hancock, uh, Tommy Cooper, <coughs> Dick Emery, Frankie Howard, 88 screen credits in all. And then we get into the uncredited department, uh, Maxwell Craig, four and two half points, uh, The Persuaders, UFO, Department S, Man in a Suitcase, The Prisoner and Danger Man, that's 113 mostly uncredited screen credits. Elsewhere, the uncredited roster includes Eric Henderson, one point, Jack Dearlove, Interpol Calling, The Four Just Men and Danger Man, Hubert Hill, Two Saints, One Avengers Points, and Hein Viljorn, two points from the studio days, but eight saints. So that's the Rhine Maiden. But, tell me, David, have you ever owned the board game of the Colditz story? Yes, yes, I have. Escape from Colditz, board game which, until it was reissued some years ago, Parker Brothers Escape from Colditz was a bit of a collector's item. 
Um, and on the front, you had signed um, and endorsed by Major Pat Reed, who said that um, because he'd been at Colditz, this board game um, really does capture the spirit and essence of what it was like being in Colditz. And it was a hugely elaborate board game, good fun um, to play. But for those who did play it, all I will say is the hatred and loathing for the card April Roll Call. All I need to say, for, <laughs> you would attempt and stage various ways of getting out of cost and you would collect all the bits and pieces of equipment that you needed and some of you may be hiding out in the staff car some of you may be going through a tunnel some of you may be clambering over a fence some maybe may be using the main glider that they designed there some of you may be snaking down the wall with a rope but as soon as the card came up april roll call Everyone had to bother gathering the central courtyard, no matter what you were doing. And there'd be groans and moans uh, because you had to do that. That's really annoying. I feel your pain. <laughs> oh, what? Do you know why I asked you that? Is Colditz coming up for, for, for an airing? Because um, I know uh, Talking Pictures already shown it and they're showing it again. No, it's, it, this connection is more Saints-specific because, and I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for Brian Degar. Oh, right, okay. Scriptwriter who's described as, first, merchandiser, producer, screenwriter, creative packager. Oh, right, okay. And he appears to have done some work America. He was born in Buenos Aires of English parents. Okay. And then after a meeting with Roger Moore, he received the opportunity to write several episodes of The Saint. He also wrote episodes of The Baron and The Strange Report and Shirley's World for ABC America, as well as The Informer and Mask of Janus. But he started creating and developing his own TV series with uh, the BBC in 1963. And he wrote, he created and wrote three episodes of Vendetta, um, ah, with the great John Barry theme tune. Indeed. He was a fluent Italian speaker. And so collaborating with Dino De Laurentiis on design, script consulting and editing for Barbarella, Danger Diabolique, okay. ah. Better a Widow and Summertime Killer. And then he was producer on The Venturers, which was a BBC television drama concerning the world of high finance. And he produced Colditz. And that's where the tie-ins happened because he managed to use the intellectual property of the series for the spirit of Colditz, which was a model of the Colditz glider for Airfix. Yeah, you were able to, to get that. And there was also an Action Man Escape from Colditz kit as well. We pulled together Sentry Box with the black, red and white chevrons. All right, so did you have one Action Man sneaking behind a guard? Yes, yeah. Um, and so you've got, you've got two outfits. You've got a German guard uniform and you've got like a British POW and like loads of bits and pieces to escape. And you've got a, a mock setup of a Red Cross parcel as well. 
if you had the two together with Escape from Colditz, that would really create an atmosphere, wouldn't it? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, you know, you'd be able to, to, to play your board game. But yeah, it did become a little bit of a collector's item for a while and sets would be going for about 60 or 70 quid on eBay and Amazon. And then it was, it's one of those board games that then got reissued. Um, so if you are ever out there as a collector, you know, make sure is it an original one or is it the reissue? The same would also apply for the On The Buses board games. I'm hoping that the On The Buses board games didn't sell over half a million copies like the Colditz <laughs> one did. Yeah, me too. But yes, a pioneer of merch mm. is Mr. Brian Dagar and lived to the age of 85, I think it was. He only died in 2020, so and left his mark on British television. British, yes, and British board gaming culture. So next week, we have to look forward to the episode entitled The Inescapable Word, which does sound like it might be the final line of the episode. But what's really interesting is the three episodes we've just discussed, Guy, have really had an awful lot to do with filthy money, um, whether it's been fraudulently obtained, whether it's been stolen, or whether it's money on a contract killer. Um, it's all horrible money grubbing. And and maybe because the writer of the next episode is Terry Nation, you've got coming from a slightly different angle because the plot of the inescapable word is death rays seem to be coming from a Scottish research centre. Of course, in the 60s, Scotland was full of remote research centres. Nothing to see here. Move along. There's nothing to see here. This area is out of bounds. Yes, I suspect the inescapable word would be something I would utter when I tripped over something and did myself yes, an injury. Yes, my leg, my foot. Possibly Simon is straying into science fiction territory. Sci-fi. Yes, like I said, maybe it's a Terry Nation influence. We don't know. But we know it won't be giant ants. It's... <laughs> Would you say that a Scottish research centre is more or less sinister than a private clinic? Tell you what, those two are going to run neck and neck. Wouldn't like to call it. I, I can guarantee you, though, both will be up to no good. It's highly unlikely that you are going to go to a Scottish research centre and be told, oh, you know what we're doing, actually? We're developing kind of like a new drug to combat arthritis. And we're doing a series of clinical trials out of a private clinic in Germany. You know, it's not going to be that kind of benevolence. It's going to be just like pig's heads grafted onto sheep and things like that. All oh, right. Well, it's, it's too soon to go into the omega factor. <laughs> well, there was an awful lot of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, for anyone listening who wants to watch the omega factor... My recommendation is don't. You're not going to get those hours back. Yeah, not. Right then, David, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been Rose Tinted Black and White Television, the review show where we've been reviewing episodes of black and white television. Uh, inevitably, it's The Saint because there are so many of them. We're still in Series 3 and we've had the contract, the setup, the Rhine Maiden, and as David said, the next one is the inescapable word. I'm Guy Morgan. My co-host has been David Newell. And we will return after we've eaten twice our body weight in chocolate. <laughs> <laughs>
over Easter. Absolutely. Yes. So yeah, happy Easter.